Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Today's guest is Crystal Hickman. Crystal is a TEDx speaker, artist, photographer, and community scientist. However, it's her passion for native bees that's led her to appear on Nature's Archive today. Crystal has combined her tenacity and photographic talent to make a number of discoveries about native bees, and she's determined to raise awareness about the decline of native bees and their habitats. In fact, she was recently profiled in the LA Times for these efforts. Today, we embark on a journey of discovery with Crystal as she introduces us to our native bees. We explore several genera of bees and delve into their habits and their remarkable life histories. Crystal also shares her expertise on photographic techniques for bees and how to find them in the wild. Also, Crystal has just launched a Kickstarter campaign for a new project featuring photographic flashcards of 40 of the most common native bees, complete with interesting facts and identification techniques. I've linked to that in the show notes. You can connect with Crystal on her website at bsip.com, that's B-E-E-S-I-P, or follow at bsip on Instagram or at bsip online on Facebook and Twitter. So without further delay, the amazing world of native bees with Crystal Hickman. Crystal, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yeah, and as we were chatting about right before I hit the record button, I saw you speak at the California Native Plant Society conference in San Jose last year, and I was so blown away by it. Your presentation, your photographs, your personal story, like all of it was just so amazing that I was actually nervous about asking you to be on the podcast. I'm happy that you accepted. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I was really excited when you asked me because I, I just had I had told you before, but yeah, I just started listening to your podcast and absolutely loved it. So real pleasure. That's great. It was it was meant to be. It was meant I to be, yes. Those puns, I can't control it sometimes. They just come out. But that's one of the things I really hope to dig into today is the diversity of bees, the amazingness of bees, which is part of your journey. But also, as you spoke about at CMPS, your own personal journey that led you to the bees. So can you tell me about your early memories with nature and when you really recognized that you had this connection to nature? Yeah. So I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, originally born and raised. And my connection with nature started out just in my own front yard. So I remember as a toddler just going out and that my mom had some rose bushes in the yard and there were ladybugs and there were box elder bugs and there were spiders. And I was absolutely obsessed with all of them. So I would spend hours just sitting by the rose bushes, just looking at the insects that were in them, which is odd because I do the exact same thing now, not with rose bushes anymore, but you'll find me pretty much outside almost every day looking into a plant or into a bush or something for insects or for bees. But yeah, as I got older, I started going to hiking and camping trips with Girl Scouts, started going into the woods more, just seeing nature that wasn't basically in a box made by people. And it's funny, these days when I think about rose bushes, my first thought is, ooh, non-native, but it sounds like they were attracting some interesting things nonetheless. Yeah, it's funny too, because I look at rose bushes completely different now. Like back then I was like, oh, this is nature, but now I'm like, maybe avoid those. So yeah, it's definitely changed a little bit. Yeah. Well, there and there are native roses in much of the US. There is that. They don't look the same, but once you get over that, they attract lots of cool things. But I know that nature wasn't your only interest Growing up and into adulthood, of course, because when I was poking around on your website, I saw that you've been a ballpoint pen artist. You've done some amazing, some amazing, <laughs> some amazing 
artwork using different medium. But can you tell me about that journey? Did you did you lose touch with nature and get into art or was nature always there? And how did all that come to be? So nature and art were both always there. I always loved to draw. I feel like I just came out in the womb loving nature and art. But as I got older, like college age, that's when I stopped doing both because I had to focus on the real world because those aren't careers. So yeah, I ended up like just sitting behind a desk for a while. And it was like about two years of me doing that. And I felt like I was just getting dumber. And I started drawing with a ballpoint pen because I didn't have a pencil. So I was actually, while I was sitting at my desk, I'd say the last few months, I picked up a pen and started drawing. And I ended up just quitting my job, it was in finance. And for a while, I just stumbled around, didn't really do anything. But then I was like, I got to pick up something. So I started drawing more regularly with a ballpoint pen. I actually uh, was obsessed with this British TV show called Skins. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was really good. You should check it out. I think it's on Netflix or something. But yeah, I basically drew all of the cast members from that show. And then after that, I was like, what am I going to do with these drawings? I ended up putting it into a video on YouTube. Then after I finished that, I found the creator of the show on Facebook and he was like, hey, we're making an American version of the show. Do you want to be the artist? So about a month after I started drawing again, I got my first art job and then it took me into 10 years of developing my ballpoint pen work. And then I also started working with Sugar, which led me to the the TED Talk because I was the basically the first person to start working with Sugar. But yeah, just kind of kept moving me forward in like new and unique places. I watched the TED Talk here recently. And that's the thing that just struck me was how the creative through line, I think, that you have to come up with using sugar as a medium. Let me back up a little bit. So when you picked up drawing after your career in finance, it sounds like you already had some background in art or was this just suddenly you discovered this talent that you didn't realize you had? Well, I was always creative growing up. So I was very good at just making things with my hands. So it could be drawing. It was also pottery, just coming up with new ideas. And then I guess one of the things too, when I left that career slash job is I really didn't know what I wanted. So I just decided every single idea that I have, I'm going to go forward with it like full force just to see where it'll take me. So drawing was one of those things. And I was like, let me just see where it goes. And it ended up taking me to some like very cool places, getting really cool connections. Yeah. By the way, that TED talk, I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. Like all of the things that we talk about that are linkable, I try to make it easy for the listeners to go find it. So I'll do that. So now how then did bees re-enter your life? (laughs) Completely randomly, and it was through Facebook. So there was this quote that was put up on Facebook that really motivated me for a very long time, and it turned out to be completely made up. It's, if the bee disappears off the surface of the globe, then man only has four years of life left, no more bees, no more man, something else like that. And it was attributed to Einstein. I saw that online, and I thought it was real, (laughs) like pretty much everyone else who's read it. And it got me very motivated to get back into nature, specifically bees. And I, like pretty much everyone else who read it, thought it meant honeybees. So I was like, oh my gosh, I have to save the honeybees. I didn't have a camera at the time, but I did have my phone. I think I was out there with a Samsung S6. And I just went out and took a whole bunch of photos of 
honeybees just for longer than I would like to admit. And then I think it was a weekend when I was pretty close to getting a camera. So I was renting one. I went out to the Sepulveda River Basin, which is in Van Nuys, California, and I photographed a bee that was not a honeybee. I was okay, wait, what is this? And then I ended up going back to my beekeeping friends and they were all like, it is a bee, you're right. We don't know what it is though. So then turned back to Facebook, there was a group called Native Bees of the Americas and I'd never heard of the term native bee before. Ended up joining the group. There was a bunch of entomologists and militologists in the group and militologists are people who study bees. And again, new terms for me at the time. And they identified the bee right away as an andrina, which is a mining bee. And it just opened up my whole world, like the conversations I had with these people. They were talking about the differences between native bees and honeybees and why native bees are important to native plants and just why they are potentially threatened or endangered and kind of took me back out into the world to, to look for these native bees again, and or I guess the native bees for the first time. And actually, I'm not sure if it was them or um, the horticulturalist at the Crescent Farm, because I ended up going to this farm called the Crescent Farm at the LA Arboretum. And that was the first place where I actually started seeing native bees regularly, just because they have native plants there. And I think that really instilled in me in the connections between native bees and native plants, and just the idea that saving Native bees also means saving native plants and vice versa. And then also saving native plants means saving not just native bees, but animals in general, because they're so closely linked. Yeah, absolutely. I think finding these personal discoveries is so important to develop this connection because we can tell people until our faces turn blue about how cool all these native bees are, but you kind of have to go experience it for yourself with so many of these nature topics. And it, it reminded me when I moved back to California for the second time, I wanted to plant some native plants and we were renting at first and we ended up buying the house that we were renting. So I was kind of limited in what I could do, but I planted a California coffee berry and it is such a magnet for pollinators in general, but also the native insects use the plant for many different purposes too. But anyway, long story short, I was out there with my camera one time. I had always enjoyed photographing birds. And I noticed that there was this one, I thought, bee that would return to the same spot and hover and just hang out there. And it's like, you know, I bet you I could take a picture of that. And eventually I caught it. And I showed it to some people at work, engineers and program managers, like not nature people. And they're like, oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And I like, look at this bee that I took a photo of. And only like two years later did I realize it was a hoverfly. It wasn't even a bee. Yeah, but that was my eye-opening experience to the diversity of native insects that are out there contributing to this food web. And I think that's a big part of why I ended up doing what I do now. So we need to figure out how to get everybody to do this. <laughs> so you had these the series of experiences that were kind of like, it was an aha moment after aha moment, it sounds like of, oh, wow, there's more and there's more and there's more. You now consider yourself a community scientist. And what's that transition? Like, when did you say, you know what? Yes, I'm contributing to the knowledge of native bees. It's funny. I didn't actually give that title to myself. Initially, I was just going out there and doing things. But I think people started assigning it to me and I started identifying with it 
when I left gardens like the Crescent Farm, when I actually started going to places like the Santa Monica Mountains or the Mojave Desert or Joshua Tree. And inadvertently, when you start photographing nature year after year, you start noticing changes. And I completely not on purpose, but now it seems inevitable. I started documenting climate change and changes in the phenology of bees from year to year. And that also connected me in more in a professional way with a lot of these militologists. And then that's when the term community scientists started being assigned to me. And then I didn't really see myself as a scientist, but like now I identify with it more because I'm, I feel like I am contributing something. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, so when you mentioned phenology, for anyone not familiar with phenology, it's how an organism changes based on seasonality and time in association with their environment. Yeah, I started noticing it. The very first bee was a Bombus melanopygus, which is a black-tailed bumblebee. And the first year I noticed it was this bee I had seen pretty regularly starting to show up in February. And then about three years ago, which was the first year in California where the drought became like very major, it showed up about a month earlier, which is a pretty big difference. And then it just, every year it's been showing up earlier and earlier. And I was like, this is really odd. So I ended up going back to a friend of mine who's a bumblebee expert. And I was like, hey, I'm seeing this happening. What's going on? And he mentioned, yeah, this is what happens in drought years. This specific bee actually starts showing up earlier. But even last year, there were, there was some bumblebees specifically that I was looking at that they don't seem to have that relationship or as far as I'm aware, but they're also showing up earlier too, or maybe it's later because we started seeing Queen Bombus Vosnesenskiae in December. So is that a very late queen or is it a very early queen? Because that's definitely off season. Interesting. And then you have the challenge, of course, of separating out what might be a strange one-off right? occurrence from a general trend. Exactly. Yeah. And then I guess what's the barrier between the one-off and I don't know, maybe there's 10 of them or I don't know, what's the barrier between like mm-hmm. something's actually happening and then just a odd occurrence. So that begs the question, do you submit your observations to tools like iNaturalist? I used to submit a lot more of them than I do now. At the moment, I look for more rare bees So a lot of those photos are going straight to projects or they're going straight to militologists who specialize in those bees. And if they're something that I'm probably not going to use personally, then yeah, I will post them. Yeah, I'll have to make sure I find you on on INAT and follow. Oh, great. Yeah. (laughs) So we're talking about native bees and how they are 
so different from the European honeybee that I think most people are most familiar with. So maybe can you just tell me a little bit about the characteristics of native bees? There's so many genera of native bees that this is hard to say, but maybe a little compare and contrast at a high level. And we can talk about some of the specific types of bees in a little bit more depth afterwards. Sure. To start off in the world, there's over 20,000 species. In the U.S., there's 4,000. The Western United States, there's 3,000. In California, there's a little over 1,600. So there's a lot of bees. Most of them are solitary, meaning they live by themselves, but they can also live in groups called aggregations, which is like a neighborhood. So basically they all live together, but they have their own little house. Because they're native, they can potentially have symbiotic relationships or mutually beneficial relationships with native plants where they, one or both, can rely on each other for survival. Like there's some species of native bees that will only pollinate one family of plants. So if something happens to that family of plants, wherever they're located, the bee might not have a resource for pollen or nectar even. Yeah. Also, I think about 70% of native bees are ground nesting and 30% are cavity nesting. Yeah. That's really interesting because I think Growing up, the misconception is that all bees live in these hives and they're colonial. But the fact that so many are solitary and live in the ground, (laughs) I think, is one of the first eye-opening things that that people have on this journey of discovery. Now, the cavity nesters, I know they can choose a diverse array of places in which they do nest. Do you have any examples? Like, Where might you find the uh, non-ground dwelling bees? For example, there is a bee called the Serotina, which is a small carpenter bee opposed to the Xylocopa, which is a large one. So they'll nest in pithy stems, which are plants that have a stem with a spongy or soft center. So they'll actually excavate the center of the stem and create a, a little cavity nest in there. Very, very cute bees. So if in your yard, for example, if you have native plants, it's recommended that you leave maybe about 12 to 18 inches of a stem if you're cutting back your plants and they'll use those to nest in. There's also ones, let's say some Osmia, some Megachylae. A lot of people actually take advantage of the fact that they nest in cavities to make bee houses or bee hotels for them so they can observe them there. Yeah. And there's also some bees that, oh, Dianthidium. This is a really cool bee. So this is a stone bee. So their nest is actually a bunch of little pebbles that they're, they'll seal together and they'll create a single solitary nest in these little pebbles and they'll attach the pebbles to a stem above ground. And I think it's really cool because right now you can actually walk around trails and I've run into a couple of those. There's also um, another bee called the Anthodiliellum that will make a resin nest, which is very cool. It's like a brown gumdrop, it looks like. And it's just one single cell that's also attached to flora outside. I think this is such a great taste of the variety that you find out there from constructing a nest to taking advantage of existing stems. There's just so much variety. Now, what about the large carpenter bees? You know, they have a reputation for sometimes drilling into wood structures. Is that accurate? That is very accurate. Yes. In California, we have three large carpenter bees. And it's interesting because they all have different preferences for wood that they like. But yeah, so these bees are actually semi-social. So they're not, it's just like a different form of sociality. So the females 
create a nest and they actually show cooperative brood care. It's really cool about them. But yeah, they don't actually, I know the holes can be unsightly, but they typically don't really cause structural damage. So I don't think there's any reason to technically remove them. So let's, again, no pun intended, drill into the large carpenter bees a little bit more. So they have these holes in wood and sometimes wood structures. Are they overwintering in there? What does their life cycle look like? So I think carpenter bees across the board in California anyway, I think they can live up to one to two years. So they are, I don't know if I would say they're overwintering because you can actually see them all year, depending on if there are flowers. So again, it depends on what's going on with nature. Although they do have certain seasonalities, like for a lot of them, you'll typically see them March through November. Yeah. So it really depends on, on the individual bee, but yeah, they are basically their brood are, I guess they eclose or they emerge as adults in the early part of the year, but adults can potentially live for one to two years. And I have another somewhat random question. On my house, we have a stucco house, which is like kind of a hard concrete material. And I don't know the history, but in a few places, there are holes in the stucco that look like maybe somebody drilled a nail in or something like that. They're about the size of a nail. And last year, I noticed some bees that were going in and out of this hole in the house. I never did figure out what kind of bee it was. I guess I could have tried to capture it and observed it more closely. I never did that. But very random question. Any ideas of who would be taking advantage of a hole in a concrete stucco? In a concrete. Okay. So it could be in concrete. I would typically not say a carpenter bee because they do prefer wood. It could be a megakylie bee. It could potentially be an osmia bee. It could be a lot of different cavity nesting bees. Honestly, it's something you'd have to get a picture of. Yeah. I'll try harder if they come back. I know exactly where it is. It's a spot I can easily observe. So I'll try harder this year and solve that mystery. Something else that I wonder about. So with the colonial bees, with the European honeybees, you have different roles that bees take on as part of that colony. And it makes sense. You think about the evolutionary pressures and they've specialized in a way, depending on where they're at in their life cycle. Do you see in the solitary bees, like, are they just doing everything? Or when they have these family groups or these neighborhoods, these aggregations, do you see any sort of specialization or roles that that they fulfill there? So I would say no for solitary bees. Again, there's not just solitary and social or like eusocial. There's, for example, um, there's bees called helictus, which are some sweat bees. And sweat bees are either eusocial or generally eusocial. So they have a colony as well, but it's much smaller than what you'd see with a honeybee or with a bumblebee. So typically there's a, a bee that would be called a queen or a foundress. And the colony also has her daughter or sister workers who typically don't reproduce. So there, and there's also a overlap in generations, like they cohabitate and they can share in the care of the young. So typically these colonies, it's sometimes there's one foundress, some of the species, there can be more than one queen, but there's normally like, I'd say about two to four bees in that colony, where as far as 
just solitary. Again, you can have the aggregation where it's just one female taking complete care of her brood by herself. But then you can also have some other bees, like an agapostomon, for example. So they have, it's basically like they live in an apartment complex. So they have one entrance for their burrows and then communal. There we go, communal. They have basically one entrance and then they have their own like apartment that kind of branches off where they take care of their young independently. Oh, that's interesting. I can visualize like a cross section of what that might look like. It's really funny because like you'll see them. Um, I filmed some agapostum and meliventris actually in my friend's backyard. And at the time, this was closer when I was starting out and I kept seeing more than one going in this burrow. And I was like, I thought this was a solitary bee. And then that's when I found out about communal bees. Super cool. And yeah, it seems like you have the entire spectrum from what you were just talking about. It was good, I think, to point out that it's not just solitary and social. There's all these shades of gray. These topics, they just, they always blow my mind because it reveals the nuance and you can start to form stories and hypotheses about how all of these systems are working together. So I'm hoping that you'll play along a little bit more with this and maybe talk about a few other common types of bees out there and how they live and what they're doing. So if you're game, we can run down a couple on the list. Yes. Bumblebees, bombus bees. I think that they hold a special place for a lot of people. They're probably the second most well-known bees after honeybees. And they're like these little friendly, fuzzy bears flying around that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I think they're like really funny and bumbling and yeah, I love them. And it's easy for me anyway, it's easy to associate human traits to them because you can see them better and you can see what they're doing. They're a little bit slower sometimes too. And to your point, they'll sometimes come out in cold weather too. And when we're thinking about California bombus species, where do they fall on the social spectrum? So they are eusocial. So they have, again, a colony with a queen and the daughters. Okay. And as a larger bee, I've always assumed that gives them some flexibility for colder temperatures. Is that why we see them in the winter times? That's a good question. And I'm not sure why it is exactly. They also can be at a higher elevation bee as well, where it's cooler. So I'm not sure if it is their size that allows that. But also, too, I, I did say they're eusocial. Some are actually parasites as well of other bumblebees, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So there's a Bombus insularis. That's one that people in, I'd say, Northern California, maybe Oregon and Washington also would be more familiar with. So the queen will actually find a, another bumblebee colony, and she will kill the queen of that colony. And... I'm not 100% sure how this works, but something with pheromones where she basically becomes the queen of this other queen's workers. And she has these workers collect resources, pollen, that are used to raise her young. So she never produces workers, but she will produce other queens and males. Wow, that's fascinating. And it also makes me realize that we haven't talked about like a, another common misunderstanding people have is the purpose and use of pollen versus nectar for bees. Can you describe that for listeners? Yeah. So typically some, I have seen some adult bees consume pollen, but typically 
pollen is just for baby bees or growing bees. And then nectar is what adult bees consume. So you'll see the adults out nectaring in their desire to have fuel to go collect pollen to raise (laughs) the next young. Exactly. Yeah. And typically when bees are specialists, they're pollen specialists. However, there are some bees that are specialists on flowers that do not produce nectar, like a poppy, for example. So they'll be a specialist on maybe a poppy, but then they also might have another plant that they collect nectar from typically. And another one that you mentioned that I've always found really interesting is uh, leafcutter bees, megachile. Why are they out there cutting leaves? Yeah. So I guess first off, so megachile aren't just leafcutter bees. There's also resin bees as well that are in the megachile genus. So leafcutter bees use either leaves and sometimes flower petals to line the cells of their brood chambers. Is that for comfort? I mean, it's not for food, right? It's not for food. It is, I guess, for comfort, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is, it's just a protective lining that they use to seal in their brood in the their nesting chambers. And continuing down the list here of some interesting bee lifestyles, cuckoo bees. Yes. I love cuckoo bees. These are actually some of my, I'd say top five favorite bees. But yeah, these are really cool because they're kind of like cuckoo birds. So cuckoo bees, they do not collect pollen for their own brood. What they'll basically do, like I'll bring up like a nomada, for example. A nomada is typically a parasite of a, a mining bee called an andrina. So they, their phenology really lines up with andrina, like you'll find them close to them. So basically an andrina will create a ground nest and she'll collect pollen for her offspring. And then a nomada will sneak into the burrow, lay her own egg, and then that egg will potentially hatch first. It'll consume the pollen and potentially the egg of the andrina bee. And yeah, it's like population control. And then there's other ones like a brachymolectica, which are parasites of Anthophora and there's Celioxis that are parasites of Megachile. So a lot of times if you want to find the cuckoo bee or the parasite bee, you look for the bee that it's a parasite of. Do you have any other interesting life history, ecology stories from bees you want to cover? The Perdita nasuda is one that I bring up a lot. So this is a bee that you'll find in dry deserts, I would say. it's I've seen it one time. I think three years ago in Death Valley in the Mojave Desert. And this bee was really cool because I can't remember exactly when it was found. But one of the things that was very unique about it is it's that the males have a facial feature called a clippius, which kind of looks like a duck bill. So a lot of times people will call them like a duck faced bee. But one thing that was not known about this bee was what the use was for that facial feature because the way bees are collected primarily right now is people will go out and net them or they'll put down a dish with some liquid in there called pan trapping them and then they take them to a lab to ID the species later. So there's not a lot of observations on behaviors of bees. I feel like that's changing. But with this bee, like it was just no one knew what that facial feature was for. But since I don't go out and like net or pan trap within 30 minutes of seeing this bee, I saw the males using the facial feature. I just I thought that was really cool. So you were able to back to being a community scientist, you were able to demonstrate then how this facial feature 
fits with the flowers that they use? So it was actually with the uh, the females. So the male actually, when he's trying to mate with her, he'll actually trap her antennae on either side of his little duck bill facial feature so she can't fly off and attempt to mate with her. And yeah, I got some cute photos of that. On your journey to learning more about bees and combining that with your photography, I know it's taken you to delving into some of the threatened and endangered species and seeking them out and trying to learn more about those. So I guess there's maybe lots of questions to unpack with what I'm about to say, but what has driven you to really want to learn more about these threatened species? I think it was just initially like learning about the changing phenology of these creatures and drought years and just seeing the impact of climate change and just wanting to go out to farther and farther places and just seeing what was out there. Because I think that's one thing specifically with the West coast that there's an issue with is there's just, there's a lot of land, but there's not a lot of people looking and we have, we're a biodiverse hotspot. It's a Mediterranean climate. We have just so much biodiversity here. And I just wanted to see what was out there. And it's a combination of just like curiosity and just loving to spend time alone out in nature. So yeah, I just I kind of get a thrill out of seeing like very rare plants. And then if there's a bee on there that I've never seen before, just learning about it and then hopefully getting some beautiful photos that people can use to like actually ID to species with too. Cause that's a big thing. Cause with a lot of the bees that I photograph, people are like, this isn't something that you can ID to species. But then I take that as a challenge. Like I'm going to go out there and do this. And so far it's, it's been working out pretty well, but. Yeah, it just gets thrilling. And it's also very relaxing to get away from people and technology. So it ticks a lot of boxes, it sounds like, in terms of personal discovery and personal health, but then also the science side. So what have you discovered so far and what else are you looking for in terms of the threatened species? Oh, okay. As far as I've I found a lot more vulnerable and rare species as opposed to threatened species. I'd say this is the first year where I actually, so I made an Excel spreadsheet last year where I basically mapped out every single month what bees I'm going to be looking for. So I was like, I'm going to find, one of my goals is to find the four endangered bumblebees in California. I've gotten one of them. I tried to get another one in the Trinity Alps in 2021. I'm going to try again this year, but I'm, I'm working really hard to just go to locations that people aren't visiting a lot just to try and find these bees and also working with some bumblebee experts or other militologists who are potentially going to these locations to try and find them as well. So just dedicating a lot of time. Like, for example, there's a, the Bombus Franklin eye, which is the one that I went up to the Trinity Alps to try and find. No one's seen that bee since 2006. I think it was August 2006, but it was just listed as endangered in 2021 which there's a pretty big gap there. So I feel like specifically with bees or with creatures that aren't like very cute and fluffy or larger, people aren't paying attention to them as much. The line between when is vulnerable, when is endangered, when is potentially extinct is blurry. I think there's a high bar. It's hard with the smaller organisms to reach the bar. So there, there are very likely things going extinct all around us that we don't even realize all the time. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I think like we could definitely look at like the rate of extinction for plants to reflect with the rate of extinction to things that have relationships with them. Yeah. I think that probably does apply to a lot of bees. So I like your approach of making a spreadsheet and having targets. Like That sounds so much like what I do for whatever the taxa of interest at the time is. I'm constantly doing that. 
what does it look like for you this time of year? So we're talking in January. Do you have targets this time of year or is it just you'll take whatever you can get when it's a little bit cooler and maybe flower activity is tamping down a little bit? I have pretty much every, what is it? I'd say maybe November through like mid-February, just a lot of free time when I'm really not looking for anything. It's I'm just plotting out what I'm going to do next year. Or maybe if I'm like looking back on stuff that I filmed before, I'm like editing. So if you see my social media during this time, it's like basically dormant. But yeah, February is when I like actually start going out and looking for a lot of bees. But you can find bumblebees right now. Yeah. I had a bumblebee in my front yard yesterday, in fact. I think it was a pyrobombus. You mentioned your social media and your photos throughout this and using photos to help advance the identification techniques. So you have some amazing photos. And I want to ask you about your photography technique. So how do you approach it when you want to go out and get photos? Aside from coming up with a spreadsheet, what sort of preparation work do you do? Well, the first thing I normally do is figure out what time sunrise is. And then I'll show up at a location about 30 minutes before that happens. And I'll look for male bees sleeping on stems because they don't move. So they're very easy to photograph. And then when the sun starts coming up and the female bees start showing, I guess this is kind of a thing too, because like certain bees are morning bees, certain are midday bees, and there's certain ones that are like afternoon bees. So I kind of have to know what time of day your bee will be present. Some of them could be all day. But if you just spend a lot of time looking at them, you'll start to notice patterns in their behavior. Like they have a routine, routine like people do. So for example, there's certain flowers, like I think it's called a pride of Medea, which is like a stalk, which has flowers just wrapped around it. I've noticed a lot of bees that will be visiting those. will just kind of circle them going up or going down. So if you watch them for a while, you'll just know which flower they're coming to next. And you can focus on that flower and take photos of them. Also, if you spend a lot of time watching bees, there's other bees that'll start watching you back. Female Anthophora bees, I've noticed particularly, like I'll stare at them for a while or I'll point my camera at them. They'll start like looking at me in the face. They'll start looking back at my camera and you can get photos of them hovering while they're looking at you because they're like curious. But yeah, that's also one way, like a cheat, I would say to ID that bee. And then I guess just knowing their life habitat, like this bee has a relationship, say like a diadacia, for example, has a relationship with a mallow. And you know, at this time of day, the sun's about to go down. This bee sleeps in the mallow. Look for a patch of mallows and you'll start to see them like curling up and they won't attempt to fly away from you as much. Also, if I see a bush that's just covered in bees, one thing I do is I'll wave my hand over the bush. It creates like a shadow. You'll see a lot of bees just scatter, but then there's other bees that will just stay there they'll completely ignore you. And then that's a bee that you want to photograph because it'll completely ignore you. So yeah, that's a tip with the Perdita Minima, which is the smallest bee in North America, potentially a world. That's what I do with those guys. I just wave my hand over the sand mat that they're on and some of them will stay. And then I just like, okay, I'm going to focus on you. It's a filtering technique. You <laughs> eliminate all the other ones. So that's so interesting. So some of this is from your own personal observation and discovery. And, and I suppose like the seasonality aspect you can find from sources like iNaturalist, Unless it's one of these very rare bees, like you're talking about, not seen since 2006, there's pro probably not enough data on INAT for that. But this like diurnal aspect where some bees are afternoon bees or morning bees, how do you discover that? Again, is it personal discovery? Are there resources that people can look at? 
Yeah, so sometimes it's accidents. Sometimes you can look on Discover Life. A lot of times what I'll do, because I'm looking for very specific bees that don't have a lot of information online, I'll actually reach out to the person who specializes in that genus or that subgenus. And they'll say like, this bee will only be present when the, the sun's at its highest point between these temperatures. And then I go out there and look for the bee on that flower exactly when the sun and temperature is that way. And then a lot of times you'll find the bees. What's another thing too, that's really interesting is like with Perdita minima, for example, just from observing them for, I guess this will be the fourth year, males and females are out at different temperatures. So if you want to get both bees, you'll have to go basically a day that has both of those temperatures. Or if you're on a cooler day, you might only see females. Oh, so much, <laughs> so much to learn. Yeah. And by cooler, I mean like minimum 80 degrees. Yeah, good point. So I, I suspect then you also have that variety across different species, because if there's a seasonality aspect, there's probably a temperature driver that leads to some of the seasonality. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And do you have any techniques to get specific compositions of the bees? Or do you put cards in the background to clean up the photo or anything like that to to help you get clean photos, both for artistic purposes, but also for identification? The only thing I do is just spend hours outside. Yeah. So the, the just, I try to get a good composition, just based a lot of its luck, but I try to focus on their face or their eyes. Cause I, I feel like it it's like a portrait of the bee because you can get more of their personality through that. But yeah, I don't go out with like cards or anything like that, or I don't net. For a lot of insects, some of the identifiable characteristics are wing venation or different other elements of their, of their structure. So is that, uh, is that also part of what you do? You just try to get every angle you can? I do. Yes. And the only angle that I typically don't get is from below, which is one of the, with megakylie bees, that's definitely helpful for ID and then some helictus as well. But yeah, wing venation can get you down to, for some bees, even subgenus. Eye shape is also very helpful. If you get um, a shot of the antennae, you can tell male from female. Also the bands on the abdomen, that can help you differentiate between different helictids. Like you can tell the difference between a helictus and a lassioglossum. If you get a shot from the bee from behind, you can tell males from females for some some genera. Also shots of the legs, the face shape, the eye shape, like how big of a jaw the bee has. Even like coloring sometimes, that's a way to identify a bee to species. Yeah, and that was, a, I was talking on a previous podcast episode, we were talking about field guides and I got this field guide to bumblebees and they have these like really fun diagrams of the coloration. And I remember when I saw a sample page, I'm like, okay, I got to get this because I thought, oh, this is going to be easy because they have these great diagrams that show exactly what each band color should be. But then when I started looking at it, it also showed all the variants that exist. Yes. Yeah. So I'm actually making some flashcards and I have bee bumblebees in them. So I started making some of those myself and... Oh my gosh. Yeah. The variation in some of these bees is just ridiculous. So kind of deciding what to show people. So I just went with extremes and I was like, there's also a lot in the middle, but yeah, bumblebees are, I, I thought I had them pretty good when I was just like in Southern California. Cause I was like, Oh, these are easy. And then you go up to the like pyrobombus you were talking about. Those ones can be difficult 
to ID the species. Yeah, keys keys are very interesting. Also, like the wording of them too. A lot of times, it's just a person's opinion. Like for Osmia, for example, you have to decipher the person who created the key. What does shiny mean or dull? So that's probably a good transition to ask about resources for people that want to learn more about bees in general. And I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are into like trying to figure out the identification as well, because that unlocks another level of ecology. So do you have recommendations as to where people could go to learn more? The Sci-Zi Naturalist, which I think is a great place. Discover Life is also really great. So is Bug Guide. As far as books, The Bees in Your Backyard, great book. That was the book that I started out with. There is a West Coast version that is coming. It's available for pre-order right now. I think it's available in May. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, an East Coast version came out, I think, last year or the year before. Um, there's also this, what's it called? Bees of the World by Charles Mishner. That's a great book. It's not a book that you read. It's like an encyclopedia. So you just like basically look at little parts of it because it's very intense, but really good book. Yeah. And you said that you're developing some flashcards. What are those going to be used for? So those will be used for IDing the 40 most commonly seen native bee species in the Western United States. So the goal is to, well, there's there's wing venation on the back, there's sociality, also plant relationships, habitat information, like a few blurbs, sentences about details about that specifically specific bee, like male, female, queen, foundress, whatever. There's also a size chart in millimeters on the front as well as the scientific name, the common name, and then a photo that is pretty helpful for ID, I think. If I understand correctly, you're also doing a Kickstarter for the flashcard project. Can you tell me more about that and the bigger picture that you have? Yeah, so the Kickstarter is March 1st, so it's running for about a month. But the main reason why I wanted to do this is because I feel like a lot of information about native bees is not very handy, especially the ones that you'll see in your garden, maybe even the ones you'll see in just various ecosystems in your area on the West Coast. So I wanted to make things easily digestible so you can take your own photos of bees or you can go out in your own garden and you can potentially ID a bee to species, but then also get facts about them. So I think too, one thing that's great about these is let's say you want to attract certain bees to your yard, there's plant relationships on the back. So if this bee has a relationship with Asteraceae, you can put asters or the flowers in your backyard and hopefully attract it if if you're in that habitat and then you know what months that bee will be present. So it starts showing up then. But yeah, just I feel like these cards are a really great way just to start out with bees. But also if you have a lot of knowledge, I feel like they'll be useful as well. Yeah, I was just trying to make something that's useful for pretty much everybody. <laughs> your primary goal is just to evangelize the bees? Sure. Yeah. Just, to, yeah. <laughs> Get people into them. <laughs> so then in terms of the equipment that you use for your photography, uh, we've talked a lot about macro on this podcast and a number of different episodes, and I can link to a, a few of those for people that want to learn more about generalities of macro photography in nature. Is there anything special or unique you've discovered with the approach to bee photography that you'd like to tell our listeners about? As far as equipment or? Yeah, as far as equipment. When I was starting out in 2018 with my camera, I got a crop sensor camera. So I have a Nikon D500 because that was, if you were taking pictures of small things, you wanted a crop sensor. 
But camera technology just keeps advancing so quickly. Honestly, you can use a full frame camera body right now and crop them and mirrorless cameras. Like Nikon has, um, what is it, a Z9? That is a amazing camera that I'm hopefully going to buy this year. It's a hundred times better, I would say, than a D500. You don't have to worry about noise on it, which is like fuzziness when you're shooting in low lights. So yeah, if I would recommend, I still think the D500 is a great camera and it's it's definitely more affordable now than when I bought it. If As far as a lens, if you're just starting out and you're taking pictures of a lot of things that will run away from you that are small, I would recommend something like a at least getting like a 100 millimeter because that gives you more working distance from you and your subject because there are ones that are closer and you can get a 50 millimeter as well, but that might be a little bit more difficult when you're first starting out. Yeah. So you, with the 50, you, you end up getting closer to the subject and you're going to scare it away in the process of doing that. And that reminds me, I was talking to a local entomologist who's also, as so many are into photography and we both, we were comparing notes and we both said that we do the same thing when we're approaching a subject such as a bee on a flower or something like that. We bring our camera up to our face before we start the approach. Yes. I do the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It seems to not frighten them away as much because you're, you don't have the reflection off the glass or I don't know what it is, but yeah, I don't know if this has happened to you too. So I have a pretty big diffuser on my camera and this is so weird. I don't know if the bees are just confused, but I have so many photos of bees reaching up to my camera lens. They're just, a lot of them are doing like the Y shape where they're trying to climb on. Yeah. Weird, weird. I don't know if, does it happen with you ever? I haven't noticed that. No. You haven't? Oh my gosh. I got to show you those photos. They're so funny, but yeah, I have a lot of those. So you mentioned a few things already about resources that people can look to, to learn more. Just to revisit that real quickly. Have you found, because I, like sometimes video is enthralling, you know, that can really hook people. Have you seen any good documentaries or videos or even YouTube channels or whatever that, that are great for learning more about bees? Yeah. PBS came out with a special, I think it's called My Garden of a Thousand Bees. It was filmed in Europe and I just found out that it's apparently not available to people in a lot of Europe. But if you're in the US, I would 100% recommend that. It's a man in Bristol, England. It's just his backyard with a bunch of just native plants and native bees. And a lot of the observations that he observed, like just saw, were things that you'll see in nature and you could use to like for photographing yourself. Just bees have patterns that they like to repeat or they have certain habits. So helpful for photographing and just learning more about them. Yeah. That one had shown up on my radar, so I'll check it out. Oh, it's so good. Definitely check it out. Yeah. I need more time. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things that I need to check out. You know, this one, take it however direction you want to take it. But if you could magically impart one ecological concept to help the public see the world like you see it, what would that be? I think the big one would be that nature doesn't belong to us. It's not ours, just that nature, it can exist independently of us. And I feel like to continue living on this planet in a healthy way, we need to be a part of nature, but also not possess it. One thing that like I I say this to a lot of people I talk to in person is a lot of people refer to bees as ours. They refer to air as ours, water as ours, or they find a new resource and they're like, what can we do with it? But I just like to point out like these bees don't belong to us. They're the bees or just bees or like the 
different parts of the environment doesn't belong to us. A lot of the really good things that we could do with nature is just leave it alone. But yeah, I just, I think it'd be great if people stopped calling nature ours. I've been doing this a lot, this conversation, because you're saying things that that just generate so many deeper side conversations. You know, because I, I'm thinking about why do people refer to nature as ours and like my bees and these sorts of things. And it's so deeply ingrained in society. And I think our relationship with nature or or maybe our lack of a proper relationship with nature. Yeah. I think one thing that's just really cool when you spend time out in nature is these things evolved over millions of years and they can completely disappear. It won't affect humanity. We can, we'll probably affect them eventually, but I just, I think that things, the importance of things shouldn't be related to how important they are to people or how we can potentially use them. And I feel like that's one reason people like honeybees so much is they're not a part of nature, at least in the US, and they don't really have any benefit. Like I would even argue with farming as well, because the way farming, that's a whole conversation, but I think like farming could be changed a lot. But I think the only real benefit is just honey. And that's, I don't know, that's, a, that's more of a want than a need. But yeah, I think farming should definitely be changed the way it's done. I think farming should be done alongside native ecosystems instead of destroying them. So much of what we do today in our relationship with nature is grounded in habits that were established decades, if not centuries ago, with less knowledge and, and really no data. And now it's just momentum. So opening our minds to think about alternative, more sustainable ways to relate with nature is it's a hard thing to do for that reason. We've been doing this for decades. So why change now, which is the wrong way to look at it. Okay. So do you have any upcoming projects that you'd like to highlight anything? You mentioned your flashcards, anything else? Yeah. So I'm currently working on two books. One of them is called The ABCs of California. This is one I've been working on since 2019. So it's 26 different species of bees. Each one is a letter in the alphabet. So there's a story that goes along with each bee as well as photos, also landscape, photography. So yeah, it's just basically most of the bees are pretty rare, but I just want to bring the diversity of not just bees, but like ecosystems to people in like a very beautiful way and like a story that goes along with it. So there's that one. And then there's a bee book that's in line with a lot of my talks. But yeah, then this year I'm just working with a lot of people who specialize in plants, especially like rare plants to try and find these bees. For the, uh, for the books, do you have publishers lined up, release dates, anything to look forward to specifically? One of them has a, I'm working with a publisher. The other one I'm probably going to self-publish because the ABC's book is a coffee table book, which I feel like those typically don't really generate any profit, but it's just been like something I've been wanting to do. So I'm like, I'll just do it. But yeah. All right. Well, I'll keep an eye out then for that progress. And actually people could maybe directly keep an eye out by following you on social media or your website. So how can people find you? Yeah. So my website is bsip.com, which is B-E-E. SIP. And my Instagram is also at BSIP. And BSIP wasn't available for Facebook and Twitter. So I'm BSIP online on both of those. Okay, Crystal, is there anything else that that you'd like to say before we depart for today? No, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been a joy and your enthusiasm really shows. So I'm looking forward to getting this out in the public. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and the work that you're doing and all the time that we spent here today. Yeah, same. 
Before wrapping up, thank you to Emily Smith for help with editing this week. Thank you to the Patreon patrons for your continued support and everyone who has left ratings and reviews of the podcast. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.